got it. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. You feel as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where the truth will set you free. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in. Tonight's special guest is the sixth man to walk on the moon, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. We have received so many questions, and I will try my best with the limited amount of time we have been granted. Bear in mind, with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo mission, Dr. Mitchell is in great demand. Initially, he granted 30 minutes, but our lobbying and persistence got us one hour. If you need to get in touch with me, send an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. As all of you who have emailed know, I try to respond as quickly as I can. Thank you for your questions, for me and the guests, and for your feedback to make the show even better. A couple of reminders. Next week, our special guest will be Dr. Michael Sala. He will be discussing his new book, Exposing U.S. Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life, The Challenge of Exopolitics. And on Friday, the 13th of February, we will have John Lear, Who Lives on the Moon? I hope you don't miss these interviews. As I said before, we're expanding our presence around the world and are tapping into YouTube for the Veritas Video Contest. Submit your video. For more information, head to the VeritasShow.com website and click on the video link for more information. In addition to Dr. Mitchell, we have two guests who were gracious enough to accept our last-minute invitation. One is Nick Pope, who has been making the world's headlines for the past few weeks. Also, you may have heard me say that we are in the process of creating the Disclosure Song, where all the VIPs of the UFO community will converge and say their name, I can handle the truth, and I'm ready for disclosure. 
It will be a surprise for you once we assemble this group of fine individuals. I contacted Paula Harris to get her part of the song, and she was kind enough to spend a few minutes on the topic of disclosure. Before we go to Nick and Paula, let me share with you an entry I posted on our blog on Wednesday of this week. That same morning, I received a message from one of our show contributors, UFO Blogger. He stated that almost immediately after he posted Nick Pope's headline regarding the Royal Air Force ordering their pilots to shoot down UFOs, his website was flooded with United States intelligence groups, such as the Pentagon, NASA, Homeland Security, Navy and Air Force military bases, and more. The real-life Fox Mulder, directly from London, Nick Pope has graciously accepted our last-minute phone call to brief us on this important announcement. Nick Pope used to run the British government's UFO project at the Ministry of Defense. Initially skeptical, his investigation of newly reported UFO incidents and access to government files on the subject soon convinced him that the phenomenon raised important national security issues, especially when the witnesses were military pilots or where UFOs were tracked on radar. Nick also looked into other mysteries, such as alien abductions and crop circles. He now continues his research in a private capacity and is recognized as a leading authority on UFOs and the unexplained. He has done extensive media work, has lectured all around the world, and has acted as consultant on several TV documentaries. Hello, Nick, and thanks for being with us once again. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's been a very busy few days. And that's why we're calling you. Can you give us a summary of your latest news that have made it big once again? Yes, the story that uh, really seems to have gone all around the world is that I was speaking about a number of instances where over the years in different countries, uh, pilots in various air forces have either attempted to open fire or opened fire on on UFOs and now some of these cases are are in the public domain of course um uh, Parviz Jafari in Iran 1976 attempted to fire uh, an air to air missile at a a UFO um in the Tehran area and the um missile uh, malfunctioned or rather the the whole weapons um control panel uh, suddenly went out of out of action um, there was another case from 1980 where Comandante Alfonso Huertas in Peru opened fire on a UFO that had entered restricted military airspace. He, he used a, a machine cannon and he saw the rounds, as he put it, get absorbed by this UFO. And of course, most recently, uh, there was a case that has emerged here in England, involving Milton Torres, sure, uh, actually a United States Air Force pilot, but based um, at RAF Manston in in the south of England, and he he told of how he attempted to fire his rockets at a UFO, having been given an order, a shoot down order, uh, by the authorities who were tracking UFO on radar. So I was I was talking about those cases, putting it together, and saying, look, this isn't science fiction we have actually tried to engage these things. And on the news, I believe you mentioned that this has been happening since the 80s, but knowing the Milton Torres case, this has been happening much longer, since the 50s. Yes, indeed. I, I, um, I, I think I was 
slightly misquoted in some of the media reports, but I've discussed this certainly in in uh, various national newspapers. I've discussed it on um, one of Britain's uh, top news programs, Channel 4 News, and most recently I discussed it on um, on Fox News, on America's Newsroom. And I think this uh, all all this mainstream media coverage of of this story has has really um, captured the public imagination. It's led to huge activity on on the internet, on blogs, forums, all sorts of other media outlets have have followed the story. I'm going to ask you about that situation with bloggers and intelligence actually tapping into those logs. logs. Do you remember during our last conversation, I asked you why the British media seems to be really taking the initiative on all UFO matters, while the U.S. media seems to just react to it. Now that we have a new administration, do you believe that will change? Well, certainly that's that's um, a hope that I've heard expressed. And of course, one of the ironic stories, whatever one one thinks this this actually was, is that, of course, one of the other stories to have uh, really taken off in, in the last few days is, is a UFO uh, apparently spotted um, at the inauguration ceremony itself. And this, this was a piece of film uh, that uh, CNN, I believe, were running. Um, Correct. And, and somebody saw something in the background. And again, Last time I checked on YouTube, one of the people, and of course it's it's been put up a, a number of times, one of the people um, who put it up had got well over 60,000 views on, on that particular video. And now, of course, the other thing that, that plays into your question here is that um, uh, Obama, of course, ran something called the Citizens Briefing Book, where there was a request for... American citizens to write in with various ideas that they felt passionate about. Now, interestingly, I think there were 23 different um, resolutions relating to UFOs, most of which said something along the lines of, now is the time to release the truth about the UFO phenomenon. <coughs> the fact, pardon me, the fact that there were 22, uh, 23 different um, resolutions, of course, split the vote they still got, um, gosh, between them, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and if you know this, but 170,000 votes. You're correct. Had all, those, yeah, had all those votes been cast for one resolution on UFOs, that issue would have finished clearly at the top. So that was interesting and showed that at, at a time of, of international tension with issues uh, like Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran, um, at a time of unprecedented uh, economic crisis with people concerned about their job security, about foreclosures. Yet, despite all that, UFOs was really, if, if you added those votes together, the single issue that people were voting about. So it's extremely interesting. There is this groundswell of public opinion on this issue. The media, I think, are beginning to, to pick up on this. And you're right that it's it's Britain that's been leading on this, but the fact that I was on um, America's newsroom earlier this week is, I think, an interesting sign. What do you make of Obama's comments on transparency and a new era for the Freedom of Information Act? Well, I welcome them, and uh, interestingly, 
in the last two days, those comments have been echoed here by David Cameron, the leader of our opposition. Yes. Uh, who, who said a, a very similar thing when specifically asked, and this was interesting. Now, Obama's remarks, of course, were not specifically about UFOs, but David Cameron's comments, uh, and this is, of course, somebody who is widely tipped to be the next prime minister uh, here in Britain. David Cameron's comments were in direct response to a question about UFOs and secrecy. And he said, well, I'm committed to freedom of information. And on the UFO issue, he said, yes, I, I don't see that as something that uh, should be subject to any secrecy. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I think it's early days. Obviously, um, President Obama has has a huge uh, number of issues taking up his his time at the moment, but uh, certainly there are a number of people who suggest that there there may be some movement on the UFO issue, and I, I watch that with interest. David Cameron must be a very popular man, because as you know, the UFO topic, once it comes out of a politician's mouth, is usually the kiss of death. You remember what happened to Dennis Kucinich? People laughed at him, unfortunately. Oh, um, yes. Absolutely. And uh, I think, um, well, Governor Richardson made some interesting comments as well, didn't he? Correct. About uh, about, uh, Roswell. But, of course, I'm reminded, I suppose, of Jimmy Carter's comments, which is why I say to the UFO community uh, that although this is is potentially very interesting, they they shouldn't perhaps get their, their hopes um, up too high because, of course, Jimmy Carter famously said, if I'm made president, I'm, I will declassify and release every piece of information there is on, on UFOs. Uh, and, of course, the UFO lobby uh, say, though, though the American government dispute this, that uh, the UFO lobby say, well, he didn't, didn't deliver. So I think there'll be a debate about this. I mean, this, this, is, this is an issue that, as I say, has captured the public imagination and interest, and people won't let it go, but, um, well, well, we'll have to see how it unfolds. Nick, yesterday we corresponded about, the, about intelligence groups logging onto different UFO news websites. And when I say intelligence, I mean the Pentagon, Department of Homeland Security, NASA, and vari- various military branches. Do you believe that is indicative of official interest, or just some board staffers surfing the net to pursue a personal interest? Bottom line is, I don't know. It could be either. It could actually be both. Um, certainly, speaking with, with my direct experience uh, of 21 years of government service here in Britain, I mean, of course, an organization such as the press office routinely monitors any story in which the organization itself is mentioned. So if, if there are stories uh, just taking... Um, NASA as an example, if there are stories out there about NASA, particularly in the mainstream media, uh, media but even, even sometimes on blogs and forums and things, uh, generally speaking, the, the press office, and, and, and that, of course, is indicative of the agency uh, in its corporate sense, wants to know. It wants to know what people are saying about it. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting that, that people were logging onto this story. Whether it, it means anything sinister, I, I, I don't know. Nick, it's our perception here that every time Nick Pope talks about UFOs or you make it to the headlines, 
you are a person with an impeccable reputation, someone who worked for the British government for years. It seems that the United States is not prepared for your most recent news about the Royal Air Force being ordered to shoot down and the past few weeks also. I just can't understand why we're seemingly caught off guard every time you say something. No, and uh, I mean, again, although I, some of the media reports spoke about the RAF, uh, I mean, I go back to the point, and it's no secret, and it shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, I mean, these cases, the cases that I mentioned, um, Pavis Jafari, Milton Torres, um, Alfonso Huertas, those, those cases uh, are not secret. Uh, there's information, for example, on... Uh, the Coalition for Freedom of Information website. There's information uh, on, on Milton Torres, for example, actually at the National Archives here in, in the United Kingdom. So, yeah, I, I see what you mean about it having caught people by surprise. And, and yet the ultimate irony is it, it really shouldn't have. These stories have been out there. They, they are not really disputed. I mean, they're, they're a matter of, of record. So it's really only a question of joining the dots. I don't mean to delve into what's classified and what you can and cannot say, but do you have somebody from the government saying, okay, you can say this or you cannot? No, I don't have that. Um, however, of course, I've signed the Official Secrets Act. That's something I signed on my first day of government service, and that binds me for life, um, even though I've, I've left uh, the Ministry of Defense now. So I, I, I don't have someone briefing me on that, but I, I know, and again, this is the result of I guess, 21 years' experience, uh, most recently in a security job. I, I know where the line is. I know what I can say and what I can't say. Before we let you go, Nick, any updates on the wind turbine ripped by a UFO? No, that's gone very quiet. The uh, blades, the damaged blades, or, or rather um, some, some parts of them, some residues, some scrapings, have gone back to the manufacturers uh, in Germany. And they're running some forensic tests because, of course, if something collides with something, there should be uh, residue. Um, but until we get that result, uh, there's, there's really nothing to report. But when we do, it, it should be a media story, and, and I'm sure that uh, the UFO community will pick up on it. As usual, Nick, thank you for your last-minute interviews. Be well, and we'll talk again. Thank you. Take care. Sure thing. Bye. And Nick Pope's website, nickpope.net. I'm Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Paula Leopizzi-Harris is an Italo-American photojournalist 
an investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena research. She's also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She has studied extraterrestrial-related phenomena since 1979 and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 1986, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek with his UFO investigations and has interviewed many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. She's a longtime collaborator with Dr. Roberto Pinotti, director of the Centro Ufologico Nazionale, CUN. In 1997, she met and interviewed the late Colonel Philip J. Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became a personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in having his book The Day After Roswell, for which she wrote the preface, translated into Italian. She consequently brought Colonel Corso to Italy for the editorial group Futuro, publisher of Il Giorno Dopo Roswell, and Corso was present for many TV appearances and two conferences. She returned to Roswell in the summer of 2003 for the American debut of her book, Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomena, usually in Italy, but today in Boulder, Colorado, the Switzerland of the United States. Good morning, Paula. This is Mel Fabregas with The Veritas Show. How are you? Very good. Good morning to you, too. <laughs> Thank you. So you're here in the U.S. now. Yes, I'm in the Switzerland of the U.S. It's gorgeous <laughs> Boulder. You should see this muddy mountains outside my window. Apparently, this closure may be happening sooner than we think. I really don't think it's going to happen in the United States. <laughs> I'm going to go on record saying that. It'll come from all over the place, and what'll happen is the U.S. will ignore it, but because it has the most to lose, Mel. I mean, on a realistic level, I'm going to support all the efforts, you know, ex-con, Bassett, and everything, but just because I'm a European and world journalist, I know that the last thing that Obama wants on his plate is talking about UFOs. Of course, he has his hands yeah, full. Yeah, his wood. hands full, and not only that, the mil- it's not Obama, it's the military. It's that secret government shadow people that are keeping the technology and are not willing to share it with the world, because it's not about saying that UFOs exist, it's about telling them that Roswell was real and they've been lying since 1947. So I'm going to support all the disclosure efforts, and I always do in the United States, but I really don't think it's going to come out of here. I think... This is Paula's thinking, so that you can keep this to yourself. I think the ETs will probably show up over five different airports, and and and, and the craft will be sitting over the airports, and then nobody will have a choice. (laughs) In my opinion, also, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I always play devil's advocate. Unless we give immunity to those who have been involved since the 40s, I don't think this will ever happen. Because what are they going to say to the people? We've been lying to you since 1947. I mean, the official, the official um, uh, Air Force is that, you know, the content reports that it was no threat and there was no UFOs to worry about. And then they go ahead and say that they're still crash, uh, trash dummies coming, you know, a crash uh, testing dummies in Roswell, and Roswell never happened. Even with somebody as powerful as Mitchell talking about it. The United States hasn't admitted it. There's nobody more powerful than an astronaut. And even with his, but you've got to understand, he's doing it from, he does radio shows from England and all over the place. It's the world that knows it's real. It's America that's the last bastion not to hold out. 
and they'll hold out until until a UFO, come, you know, two or three UFOs come over airports, and all the people are looking at them, and then they have no choice. And by the way, the, the crash test dummies, as everybody knows, Russ will happen in 1947. The crash test dummies didn't come in until the 50s. Well, we, yeah, we know that. Stanton's done his homework. He's been really good. But see, Stan, even Stanton can't break through this barrier. This idea that, that uh, you know, Roswell never happened. Well, they have to admit that. They have to admit that first. And then that there was one live alien. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's hard for people to get a handle around. But I'm still on board. I, if there's a next conference, I'll be there for the fifth time. You know, I've been in Washington four times already, and the, nobody covers it, and nobody, the, you know, nobody does anything. I mean, we're right under their noses. We put Paul Hellyer and, and, and Mitchell under their noses, and they still won't cover it. So I don't know what's happening is, though, it's coming out of the other countries. For instance, uh, England was covered by Fox News, which is very conservative. Nick Pope was covered by This Fox. week. Sure. Yeah, so it's coming out of... Yeah, and then Denmark just opened up its files. Now you can't even, you know, it's like, so I'm working on the Denmark thing because I'm Michael Sala's liaison to Exopolitics Europe. So, but anyway, oh, this is all back stuff. This is, I'm just giving you, I'm very optimistic. I'm going to think positive and I'm ready to do whatever you ask me to do. Thank you. Speaking of the people you just mentioned, I will have Dr. Michael Sala with me next uh, week. Paula, thank you so much. And, you know, perhaps in the future we can uh, conduct a, an interview with you because you're, you're a plethora of information as well. Well, that'd be great. Remember that I'm leaving for Italy on, um, on the uh, 20... Well, I'm going to Laughlin on the 20th of February. So if you don't catch me before the 20th of February, it'll have to be in April, okay? That's, that's fine. Or we can call you in Italy, too. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. All right. You take care. Good luck. You too. Be well. Take okay, care. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. And to get in touch with Paula's work, go to paulaharris.com. That's P-A-O-L-A, harris.com, where she has a very comprehensive and multilingual website in English, Dutch, French, and Italian. And now, The Veritas Show is proud to present a special introduction made for Dr. Edgar Mitchell and all the brave men and women who had the right stuff, those who put their lives in danger, and those who paid the ultimate price while serving not only their country, but all their fellow citizens of this planet we call Earth. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others do. minute of their two and a half hours on the surface was programmed. Rock and soil samples were to be collected, photographs taken, experiments set up to catch unfiltered particles from the sun, to record moonquakes, to measure precisely by laser beam reflection the exact distance between moon and earth. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston, AOS over. Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. They're setting up the flag now. I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene. Do you believe in life on other planets? Oh yes, there's not much question at all, but there's life throughout the universe. We're not alone in the universe at all. You're convinced that we're not alone in the universe? Oh, I know for sure we're not alone in the universe. And uh, I happen to be privileged enough to have uh, be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet. And the UFO phenomenon is real, although it's been covered up by our governments for quite a long time, 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 for quite a long time. Navy Captain Dr. Edgar Mitchell was the sixth man to walk on the moon. His academic background includes a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Management from Carnegie Mellon University, a Bachelor of Science from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, and a Doctor of Science in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT. In addition, he has received honorary doctorates in Engineering from New Mexico State University, the University of Akron, Carnegie Mellon University, and an SCD from Embry-Riddle University. Dr. Mitchell has received many awards and honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the USN Distinguished Medal, and three NASA Group Achievement Awards. He was inducted to the Space Hall of Fame in 1979 and the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1998. After retiring from the Navy in 1972, Dr. Mitchell founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences to sponsor research into the nature of consciousness as it relates to cosmology. In 1984, he was a co-founder of the Association of Space Explorers, an international organization 
of those who have experienced space travel. He is also the author of Psychic Exploration and The Way of the Explorer. Dr. Mitchell has spent the last 30 years studying human consciousness and psychic and paranormal phenomena in the search for a common ground between science and spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, to say it's a great privilege and an honor to have with us Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, is an understatement. Hello, Dr. Mitchell, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I remember back when I was seven, I almost met Neil Armstrong on a cruise ship, and for some reason, I couldn't say hello. After decades, one of my childhood dreams was to speak with an astronaut who had been to the moon. Not many get that chance, and here you are. I can now put a big X next to that fulfilled dream. Got, got that one done. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Mitchell, before I ask you to take us back to when you were growing up in New Mexico and your time in the Navy, I seem to always ask my guests this question at the end of our show. However, I would like to get it out of the way right from the beginning in case we run out of time. Okay. It will be almost 50 years the next time we return to the moon. While other countries will get there before we return, in your opinion, why so long and why did we stop? The quickest answer is that we, uh, when John Kennedy um, offered the challenge of going to the moon in the decade, it's purely a political decision in an attempt to be ahead of the Soviets. But as far as timing among the people, timing in general, it was a decision ahead of its time. And he essentially plucked a decade out of the 21st century and exposed it to the 20th century. And, okay, we went to the moon. But by and large, we weren't really ready as a people, as a civilization, or even as scientists to go to the moon. And we, because we, the evidence for that is we haven't followed up and continued. And, of course, most scientists who think that we really should continue and follow up on it. But we haven't done that. We've let that lapse. Do you believe that it's a motivator for us to go back just because the Indians, the Japanese, and the Chinese are going? Well, that is a motivator. <clears throat> to me, the greater motivator is that I think it's our destiny. And I put it in the long-range perspective that uh, in due course, our sun is going to burn out, and we're not going to have a solar system to be inhabited, to inhabit here. So we're going to have to be ready to go somewhere else. And I guess we can get started any time now. Now let's go back to your childhood. When you were growing up in Artesia, New Mexico, as a young man, a town not so far from Roswell, did you often look up and dream of visiting space? And did you ever imagine or contemplate actually walking on our moon? Only one of six contemporary men to whack, walk the very surface of our satellite. Were you a fan of science fiction like Jules Verne, even as a youth in the desert of New Mexico? No, not nearly as much as um, perhaps I, well, certainly as I was later. I think many of us, uh, and I've compared this with other astronauts of my vintage, that I, as far as we got into space was the comic strip Buck Rogers back in, back in those days. Uh, and I really didn't have uh, visions of uh, space flight or going to the moon until we approached Sputnik and we started to have some... Uh, news about this and some challenges about this. And then when Sputnik went up in 1957, and I was a military test pilot uh, coming back from duty in Korea, that suddenly uh, changed my mind, pushed me on a different path. 
And significantly, when you were growing up in New Mexico, you have mentioned that you were exposed to the early rumors concerning Roswell, an alien spacecraft. Back then, what did you hear? The, the first thing was, was a, a headline in the uh, Roswell Daily Record um, that um, an um, alien spacecraft had crashed nearby and had been recovered. And I think somewhere in my archives here I have uh, copies of that of that particular newspaper. It's not hard to get. The Roswell Daily Record has, has kept that one around. You mentioned that you were lucky enough to have had the opportunity to meet some of your fellow New Mexicans who were involved with the incident at Roswell. You even knew the crash site ranch, and you even knew the father of rocketry, Robert Goddard, who ironically lived nearby. You have no doubt in your mind that an alien craft or crafts did crash in the New Mexico desert that stormy night in 1947? Well, I, of course, since I don't, didn't see it personally, uh, there's, always, uh, there's always a certain amount of doubt. But because the record, uh, there, there's several lines of evidence that uh, suggest, yes, it was that. And the first line of evidence is the townspeople who were involved uh, talked about it, even, after, even though the next day, after the Roswell uh, Daily Record made this proclamation, the next day it was denied by the Air Force, and it was uh, said to be a weather balloon. And that seemed to put, put an end to it, except for the fact that uh, some of the people involved, the rancher, uh, the undertaker, some of the people in the police force, some of the other people in the military, some of whom my family knew. And remind, let me remind our listeners, that was, that was a small community in the Pecos Valley. Uh, Roswell wasn't more than 25,000 people uh, and at that point in time. And the little town I lived in was not more than three to 4,000 people. So, and we knew my people being ranchers and cattle, cattlemen, uh, we knew everybody for 50 miles around or uh, had connection with everybody for 50 miles around. So word like an alien spacecraft kind of got around in spite of the fact that uh, the military and the authorities at that point were very, uh, tend to be a little bit harsh if uh, people talked about it. And, uh, but it nevertheless, the word got around a bit. Now, as a young, as a boy in high school, uh, I heard that. I paid a couple of days' worth of attention to it and then forgot about it because I had other things to do. At least forgot about it for a few years. Can you share with us some of the insight and personal detail that those witnesses share with you or any of the briefing you later got at the Pentagon concerning that incident? The, uh, well, some of the more powerful witnesses, of course, uh, I do know Jesse Marcel Jr., who was the sure. Uh, but the Jesse Marcel, Major Jesse Marcel, who uh, <clears throat> was the first officer on site at the crash site. And uh, Jesse has been very open about saying, okay, Dad brought this stuff home. He was only 11. I was about 17 at that time. But I did not know him at that time. I didn't meet him till later. But he was very open about saying Dad brought this stuff home and said it was from an alien spacecraft. And, of course, and some of the children of the undertaker and the people at the funeral partner, uh, there was the stories of uh, small coffins being taken out for the deceased uh, 
aliens that were found there. And uh, uh, stories like that and stories from the uh, police department uh, or the sheriff's department who had helped the military um, uh, control traffic and cordon off the uh, particular range. So those families and those people were known in the community. <clears throat> and uh, it was later, it was after I came back from space and was back in the back in the area giving talks or meeting people and seeing old friends that these things came up and what uh, uh, the people at that point, even though they were pledged to secrecy and under somewhat threat if they talked. Uh, so that actually they, happened? Huh? The, secret, the secrecy part, being told to keep quiet was true? Oh, oh absolutely. It was, there was a considerable amount of um, a threat if people talked such that what I call the old-timers, the people who were there, who contacted me uh, back, I mean, several, many years later after I came back from space, they didn't want to take this knowledge to their grave. They did not want to die with it. <clears throat> they wanted the truth to be told. And they were afraid to talk while they were alive. And they thought I was a credible uh, witness and uh, a local boy. So they trusted me with their story, provided... I didn't uh, break their, uh, you know, didn't reveal them. Sure. And so there were a few, and including a military officer who was a friend of the family, who, um, uh, when I when I encountered him many years later, he was a, a friend of his his wife was a sorority sister of my aunt, uh, many many years ago, and that's how I got to know him. And he confirmed for me, even though he was not involved with this particular uh, event, he was an administrative officer at the base. He didn't know what was going on. And he did say, yes, from his knowledge, it was what it was purported to be. So from zero to ten, in your opinion, how true was Roswell? Oh, give me nine and a half on that one. Wow, that's great. Let's get out of Roswell for one second. Did you meet any of the military personnel involved in the, re in the search and recovery or reverse engineering effort? Uh, you mean in recent times? Recent times. Yeah. I, uh, I know a few uh, almost peripherally, and I know some of them. Uh, I've brushed elbows with them. I've met them at certain meetings, uh, but those that... Uh, The ones that I know have more come out and talked about it in recent years have been the research people, some of the people on military bases uh, uh, in, in more recent years who know the stories and have told their stories. I know quite a few of those. You have mentioned in the past that the launch of the Soviet Sputnik inspired you, but did your earlier UFO incident also help inspire your own pursuit of a career in space? No, I really didn't pay much attention to the uh, that early UFO incident. However, as I did my doctoral work uh, in my late 20s and early 30s <clears throat> and started looking at the evidence of astronomy and looking at the heavens, I uh, became very well convinced we weren't alone in the universe and that uh, if we hadn't been visited, certainly that was in our future. 
so for many, many years, uh, particularly after I became interested in um, joining the space program and becoming an astronaut, and I did a lot of research in this area, I was became quite more. I came, became much more knowledgeable uh, in astronomy and cosmology, and began to realize just how uh, huge and magnificent this universe is. And the um, the pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope just in the last ten to fifteen years, to me, are just mind blowing. They just validate everything we're talking about here. When you see those pictures, and you're a skeptic, and you continue to say we are definitely alone in the universe. What do you say to those people? I say, well, you're entitled to your belief. Uh, but I also quote Max Planck uh, from back at the end of the 19th century, who said that uh, progress isn't made by convincing skeptics, but funeral by funeral. <laughs> so uh, sometimes to change our beliefs and our thinking, we just have to wait for a new generation to come along. Dr. Mitchell, would you share with us for a few moments your highlights from your years as a young man and student when you were a pilot on board the USS Bonhomme and the Ticonderoga, and when you taught some of the best of the best at the Navy Research Pilot School? I think many of our listeners are unaware of your early accomplishments and efforts in research. Well, uh, let's say that I did start to fly when I was only 13. I became very enamored with flight and aircraft, and uh, washed airplanes out of the local airport during well, flight time. When I could get away from my duties on one of our ranches, our farm machinery dealerships, and uh, our farms, because we were agricultural people. So I, I would go out and wash airplanes during flight time, and I had my pilot's license by the time I was 16. And so when I went off to college a couple of years later, I uh, And then I graduated from college. It so happens the Korean War was on, and the, the draft was also on at that point, and I was about to be drafted, and I didn't want that, so I enlisted in the Navy, um, went through boot camp, and went through officer school, then went to flight school with the Navy, and got my Navy wings, and was serving in the Pacific uh, during the 50s when Sputnik went up. And I was on my way back to test pilot duty in um, California when uh, that happened. And it was at that point that I really got intrigued with the notion of going into space and realized that human could be right behind robot spacecraft. And uh, I thought maybe I'd want to do that. So that was my defining moment at that point in changing my career. That was the epiphany moment. That was an epiphany moment. There's one of them, right. What do you think of the efforts by fellow NASA astronaut James Irwin to uncover Noah's Ark and your pursuit for life's meaning after NASA and spaceflight? Did you discuss your own research for life's meaning with Irwin? No, I didn't. Uh, I did not uh, speak with Jim, Jim Irwin about that very much, although we were neighbors. He lived just a couple of doors from me in, uh, in uh, Houston, uh, near, near the Space Center. Okay. But uh, we were both involved in our own activities, and although we were neighbors, uh, he was much more involved in uh, his religious activities than I was. <clears throat> and his research foundation, when he left, was for the purpose of of um, affirming much of what uh, his religious beliefs were. Mine was more as a scientist looking for uh, 
what our cosmology teaches and what uh, what is nature about. And also, I then became very interested, of course, in mind and consciousness as a result of my own experience in space. Or as we say on the show, like Carl Sagan said, I don't want to believe, I want to know. That's, that was kind of it, exactly. I really wasn't interested in believing. I was interested in evidence and finding out how the universe is put together. And I will admit that in the 50s, at the beginning of the space program, uh, our knowledge of the heavens and our knowledge of astronomy and our knowledge of what was out there wasn't really much more sophisticated, if it, if it any more sophisticated, than God in the heavens, man in the middle, and everything else below. That was our general concept of what the universe was all about. And, of course, once you start to dig into that and you have an intellectual bent, you realize that uh, there's much more to be discovered and that we're barely, barely, just barely out of the trees as far as uh, our knowledge of what this universe is all about. And our science is still rather primitive. Do you believe that those in control want to keep us keep knowledge to themselves and keep the knowledge on a trickle-down system, if you will? There are certain, there are certain, I think, but do that. But that really flies in the face of what uh, our Western and particularly our our country is founded on. Our academic system is founded on inquiry and expansion and. Uh, Uh, discovery. And even though there are regressive people and regressive minds that uh, would like to play the control game, uh, in the best sense, academia is better than that. And what about Rusa? His piloting skills saved the Apollo 14 mission when he overcame problems docking with the lunar module. What was the crew thinking during that experience, given the dangerous events of Apollo 13? Well, uh, let's put it in a little bit perspective. All of us were um, test pilots. All of us had been in war. We were somewhat used to hazardous situations. And we were also in planning to go to the moon. We had done a very good job, along with the team that helped build the spacecraft, in working through the what-if situations. What if this happens? What if that happens? and building workarounds, having emergency procedures. So when these sorts of things happened to us, began to happen to us on the way out, and we had trouble with the initial docking, uh, the first thing we did was go into emergency mode and figure out what to do about it. And it only took about an hour, and uh, with the help of people on the ground, we found a workaround, and it turned out it worked. Now, the likely problem that we had was because a rain shower had... uh, occurred just before liftoff as some weather passed over and probably got into the docking mechanism and froze it. The water in it froze, so we we had to work around that. And we had had a nice workaround that, that worked. And so we were able to go on our merry way. What about your Apollo 14 crew? I heard Admiral Shepard was quite a character. I remember when I used to fly, my instructor told me I needed to learn Shepard's prayer. And at the time, I didn't know what it was. How's it go? Uh, please, dear God, don't let me blank up. And about his comments to the media of what he was thinking while waiting for liftoff, the fact the ship was built by the lowest bidder, and him playing golf. Why can you tell us about the crew? Well, uh, we, can, we thought of ourselves. If you think of uh, 
a uh, circle of personality types being a 360-degree circle, we were, frankly, about 120 degrees apart. <laughs> we were about as three different people as you could get in one crew as far as personality types, but we were also professionals, and we complemented each other very well. We worked together very well, even though we weren't necessarily social buddies, but we were a good a good crew, and we worked together because we respected each other, and we... Uh, respected each other's talents and knew uh, each of us was the best at what we could do, and it worked very well. And before we take our first break, and remembering coming right after the nightmare of Apollo 13, what was NASA and flight preparations like so soon after the emotional and World Watch event? Well, uh, let me point out, and perhaps our listeners don't know this, but that Apollo 13 was originally our mission. Is that right? How that happened was that our progression in those days, our rotation, was that you served as a backup crew, and that was training to be a prime crew three flights later. So we we did training on backup. One of our training, our last training was on a backup crew, and then you moved to a prime crew. So I was on the backup crew of Apollo 10, um, and that as a lunar module pilot backing up Gene Cernan. <clears throat> and that meant that uh, we should move to Apollo 13 three flights later. But Gordon Cooper, I worked with Gordon on Apollo 10, and he retired at that point from the program. And Alan Shepard, who had been grounded with uh, uh, inner ear problem called Manier syndrome, and had it corrected, had come back on flight status. But headquarters had said... Uh, Alan, you have been grounded and not in training as much as we'd like, so why don't you and your crew uh, ship missions with Jim Lovell and his crew, which is Apollo 14. So over somewhat protest, they took 13, we took 14. They ended up getting the bad machine, and we got a good machine. And furthermore, oh, if you saw the movie Apollo 13, sure. uh, Ken Magically, who was the command module pilot for 13, and he and Fred Hayes and I were closest of buddies. Uh, Ken was bumped from 13 just at the last few weeks because he had been exposed to the measles of one of the astronauts' kids. Hmm. And so his backup had to take his position. So that left Ken Mattingly and I on the ground as the most senior uh, command module and lunar module pilots in the Corps to help bring these guys back, our buddies back. And we worked. Uh, we went immediately into the simulators and working on the problems as to what they would have to do in space to get home safely. And we we did it in the simulators ahead of time. So that was our part to the uh, Apollo 13 mission and helping them get home before we flew on Apollo 14. Boy, were you lucky that you went of 14 and not 13. Well, I think it all worked out pretty good for all of us, even though we were kind of upset about that at, at that time. We did we did fly the mission and go to the, the landing site. That was the Apollo 13 mission. The retrieval of the Apollo crew was one of the most watched and uniting events in human history. What was your involvement in that effort, and did that also alter your own life perspective? <clears throat> Certainly, the Apollo 13 event was uh, a supreme test 
of what NASA, our training, and our dedication was all about because it was the likelihood of bringing them back was very small, but we had to give it a shot. And uh, again, we had prepared ourselves to for virtually every emergency we could think of. And in this case, the people in the, in the control room had been practicing and we had worked our what ifs, what if this fails and what if that fails. And here was a supreme test for the whole. <clears throat> the whole team had to come to immediate, uh, well, get into our best mode if we were going to bring these guys back. And fortunately, it all worked. And I'm convinced at this point that was uh, not in small measure due to uh, several hundred millions of people, perhaps a few billion people on Earth, uh, watching and following and adding their good thoughts to help us getting, get them back. And we'll be right back. We're here with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. Don't go anywhere. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. <laughs> 